talk amongst yourselves for a minute while I catch my breath. (laughs) Lots of stuff going on here this morning. It is good to be here with you. My name is Cole. If this is your first time with us, I'm on staff here at the church, and I would love to meet you in the lobby after the service, but most importantly, welcome. It is so good to see each and every one of you here this Sunday. Uh, How about one more round of applause for VBS? Yes. For all the volunteers that made this thing happen, I said the other night, we have so much to be grateful for here at the church, and so VBS is definitely one of those things, and a big, big thank you, I don't know if she's still in the room, but to Jody. Jody kept us all together and kept us moving in the right track. Huge, huge thank you to her. Huge, huge thank you to her. So uh, as we get into the sermon this morning, I wanted to take uh, a few minutes and just introduce you to somebody uh, before we jump into it, Uh, someone who we're going to be talking about. Um, He's one of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century, and more importantly, he's a pastor who models exactly what we're going to be talking about today. And so you may or may not know him, be familiar with him, but his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a picture of him. Um, And Bonhoeffer uh, was born in Germany, now Poland, but Germany back then in 1906. In 1906, and uh, faith was a part of his life and growing up. He grew up in a a generally Lutheran home, and um, he was not only uh, faith was, was not necessarily focused on, but it was very welcomed, very welcomed in his family. But Dietrich at the age of 13 decides that this is going to be what he gives his life to. He is going to give his life to the church. He is, uh, experiences a call to ministry and just dedicates from the age of 13 on to uh, the Lord. And so um, <clears throat> when the time comes, he actually comes to America And he studies at Union Theological Seminary in New York before he goes back to uh, Germany for a little bit. And then also uh, he spends time pastoring a couple congregations in England as well. I'm getting a lot of noise out of this monitor. If you don't mind turning it down a little bit, that would be great. Uh, But he also makes a couple of uh, trips to India and spend some time learning from Gandhi as well. Uh, And in the midst of all of this, he's serving in various churches and writing along the way. But around 1937 to 1939, he starts to get this call that he needs to settle back in Germany. And it's not like he has a family now, all of a sudden he's got kids, he wants the parents' help or something like that. He he wants to go home. No, he, he feels very strongly that he needs to go back to Germany because he is a strong objector to the rise of the Nazi regime uh, in Germany. And so his return to Germany is out of nothing but his discipleship to Jesus. And uh, for, for Bonhoeffer, he says the triumph of the Third Reich will mean the end of Christianity in Germany and potentially in the world. And so it's very, very serious for him, and he becomes actively involved in political dissent, but also he joins in multiple uh, attempts to overthrow the regime. And for Bonhoeffer, it's not that he's going back because he thinks that he's going to be the better person to follow. 
Uh, Bonhoeffer goes back, eyes wide open, that this probably means the end of his life pretty soon. And uh, he commits himself to it, and scholars point to uh, a book that he wrote two years earlier being the, the reason for which he has this strong feeling that he needs to go back and be a dissenting voice. Uh, two years earlier, in 1937, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. And again, he's writing in the landscape of the Nazi regime, and he's urging others to the call to be disciples of Christ above anyone and anything else. Uh, And the big theme that he's playing on all throughout this book is the difference between cheap grace, as he calls it, and costly grace. Cheap grace and costly grace. And for Bonhoeffer, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace that, uh, where we, without the cross, where we address our sin, and grace that it doesn't contain the true and living God, doesn't contain Jesus Christ. So basically, God has done all of these things for you. There's nothing that you need to do uh, in response. And for Bonhoeffer, costly grace, or what he says is true grace, is confronts us to a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes from a heart that is truly broken, truly broken and in need of grace. Grace that compels us to submit to Christ's life and to imitating it. It's grace because Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And for Bonhoeffer, this uh, is, he's a man who lives into this easy yoke of Jesus in one of the most difficult times in history. And this costly grace that Bonhoeffer was striving for cost him his life, but it gained him Jesus. And so uh, he's, con- he's regarded as one of the 10 martyrs of the 20th century. And he's a role model for many, including myself, about what it looks like to pastor or to teach in the midst of times where the world can just be ruthless. And so I told you last week that this week we would be continuing uh, the theme of posture. Last week was missional posture, and we got to hear from our students who went on the Columbia trip. And this week is all about the discipleship aspect of our posture. Discipleship, as Bonhoeffer puts it, costly grace. Salvation that leads us to the cross where we can be transformed and begin to become like Jesus. And, or as we say it here at the church, the pursuit of Christ. Discipleship, becoming like Jesus, transformation, it's not unique to Bonhoeffer and, uh, it, or anyone, really. In fact, Paul lays it out pretty clearly in his letter to the Philippians. So if you have your uh, Bibles with me, turn there. We're going, you're going to want to mark this or make note of it as well, because this is one of the key passages as to what it looks like to disciple ourselves to look more and more like Jesus. So here's what it says. Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, in speaking of discipleship, not that I have already obtained this or already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you, even with tears, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, the belly, and their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of His glory by the power that also enables Him to make all things subject to Himself. And so for Paul and for Bonhoeffer and for so many others, this is the center. This is the focus after we encounter Jesus in a personal way we begin the formation process, the discipleship process of forming ourselves through the work of the Spirit to look more and more like Jesus himself. We long to look more and more like him. And so if this is our center, if this is our focus, then the cost of discipleship is putting everything else away at the, at the hope and at the uh, and with a focus that we are moving towards becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. The old hymn says, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. And that becomes our life song. And so for Paul, it's leaving behind his past and straining for the heart of Jesus in all of his future endeavors and bringing along as many people in the process as he can. And for Bonhoeffer, it's staring, standing in the face of evil, accepting God's call to do everything in his power to ensure that that evil does not prevail as long as God gives him breath in his lungs. And so if this is our call too, if this is our focus, where do we even begin to start practicing uh, the pursuit of Christ? What, where do we even begin? What does that even look like? And so... When we're looking at the area of formation or discipleship, I tend to like the way that Pastor uh, Robert Mulholland uh, lays things out. He says, how do we do this best? He says, first, we must deal with our brokenness. He says, in the words of Jesus, we must take up our own cross. And so for Mulholland, where the cro- our cross is wherever our unlikeness to Christ and Christ intersect. It's all of those moments in our life where we look, that we don't look like Jesus. That is where our cross is. Uh, Salvation, yes, is a moment, but this is work that we do for the rest of our lives. Langston Hughes is a, a famous poet, and he wrote a poem called Tired, and it goes like this. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become more good, beautiful, and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and find what worms are eating at the rind. And for, uh, for Langston, the, the conversation about cutting the world in two is not about division. 
This isn't Republican, Democrat. This isn't liberal, conservative. This isn't a city or a country. It isn't any of those things. It's not language of division. It's language of depth. It's language of opening something up and saying, what is going on under the surface? And it is really, really easy to do that by pointing our fingers at the world. It is really difficult to do that work in our own lives. But really, that's all we have control over. All we have control over is us, and then we hope that everybody else is doing that, and we help other people do that work themselves. And so what does that look like? How do we spot our unlikeness? Uh, it's by asking those questions we've been wrestling with over the past couple of weeks. Where am I hurting? Where are the wounds? Where are the wounds that just keep festering below the surface? Where am I being stubborn with God? Is it a sin pattern in my life that is just continually rotting at my inside? If you cut through the mask, if you, if you cut the mask of my life that says everything's okay in two, what spills out? What spills out that's below the surface? Where have I been cheap with God's grace? Where have I settled? Where is God pushing me to a bigger plan that I need to have? Where am I playing the victim, blaming everyone else when I should really be digging down deep into these places and looking for where God is calling me to heal? Friends, this is what it means to examine our lives in light of the cross. That uh, once we know where we have to say yes, we can begin to look at all of those different areas in our life and examine where the, the rot is. And that takes a lifetime of intentionality. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. Old things must die at the cross so that new things can come to life. And so from there, the next step, Mahalan says, is that at each of those points, where we intersect with God, we just begin to say yes to God and no to the unlikeness in our lives. So once we know where we need to say yes, we can start to actually live into who God has truly called us to be. And so maybe for you, you dig into those things and you realize like, man, I am just always wanting to be comfortable. I am always seeking comfort. If God wants me to be uncomfortable, I'm not going. Well, Jesus says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so, no to comfort, yes to Jesus. How do we become a citizen of heaven above any level of comfort that we've ever had? Or maybe for you, it's money. Man, if I could just get enough money that I could be comfortable in my life and that I could be okay and it'll actually help me to give more, it'll actually help me to be a more generous person, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. So, no to money, yes to Jesus. How do we not become a slave to money, but a steward of the good things that God has given us? There's a term in the culture right now called hustle. Hustle is basically, uh, at its best, you're a hard worker, and mainly at its worst, that you're a workaholic. And maybe it's hustle is all I live for. Uh, if I'm not working, I'm not living. Well, Jesus is often late showing up places, and he often retreats to the mountainside to pray. So no to hustle, yes to Jesus. How do we live a spacious life that allows us to regularly commune with God? Or maybe it's you want to be important, you want to be honored, you want the plaque, you want the name on the side of the building, you want all of those things. And Jesus removes his outer cloak and puts a towel around his waist and begins to 
wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, there's no way you're washing my feet. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you will let me wash your feet. And Peter says, wash my whole body. No to recognition. Yes to Jesus. How can we give up our self-image for the sake of picking up our self-emptying love that Jesus so often provides for us? All of that can seem like a lot. We're supposed to do that in our everyday life? We're supposed to do that here, now, America, here? Yes, yes, the answer is yes. It means there's some reordering that has to happen in our lives, and it also means that it's going to take time. It's going to take a lifetime of commitment to these things. We have to regularly search the scriptures. We have to regularly be in community with people so that we can stay focused we have to start giving it a priority in our life. We have to deal with our past. We have to begin the work of transformation that Christ calls us to. Because salvation is an instant, yes. But discipleship is a lifelong journey that we embark on. I wish it was instant. I wish discipleship, wholeness, looking like Jesus. I wish it was an instant. But and I know that God's capable of it because I've seen how God has pulled people out of certain situations, but it seems like those are the exceptions to the rule. That costly grace, as Bonhoeffer calls it, takes time. Moholland says, when speaking of instant wholeness, he says, I have discovered in my own life and in reading the saints of the church that those times are the exceptions. The rule is that God begins to work with us there and to grow us up in wholeness over a period of time. We encounter Jesus at the cross. We say yes to him as our savior. We take up our cross and begin to examine where our unlikeness and Christ intersect. We begin the process of saying yes to God at each of those intersection points. And that's when we begin to start experiencing transformation. So the cost is high. Bonhoeffer was right in his book. The cost of following Jesus is high. It means that this way becomes our way. We become citizens of heaven in the face of our world, our brokenness, our sin, our families that don't understand our new priorities, our job where we have to start setting new boundaries. Everything becomes secondary to Jesus. So the cost is high. It is a lot. And maybe you've asked yourself, is it worth it? Because I've asked myself, is it worth it? I've wrestled with God asking, is there any other way? I can remember my college years where I was sitting with this question all throughout the time. I'm also going to school for ministry. And so when I say your faith is welcome here and your doubt is welcome here, I mean it because it was welcome here for me. We bring those things to God. We don't run away from God when we have doubts. And although the cost of discipleship is high, I found a dear friend in my college time that helped me to frame this in a better way. And he's journeyed long before me. I've never met him. He has since passed on. Uh, his name is Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard's an author, and in college I read his, one of his most prominent books and a real page-turner, The Spirit of the Disciplines. 
Yeah, let me tell you, that one keeps you awake. <laughs> but, but in the midst of asking myself this very question, is the cost of discipleship, is the cost of just giving my life and surrendering it to Jesus too much? Through the words of Dallas, God gave me the answer that I was looking for. And I wrote it on a note card. And I still have that note card. And on the back of it, it says 2013. So I wrote this note card 10 years ago. And this note card has been on my college uh, desk. It's been taped to the mirror in the dresser of the dresser in my childhood bedroom. It's been stuffed in with a bunch of other papers in the early apartments that Gene and I lived in. And now it sits on the windowsill in my study in, my, in our house. And uh, I'm holding on to it because I'm banking on this being true. I'm banking on this being the answer that I need. And maybe it'll be an answer for you. Because the quote says, after Dallas Willard uh, introduced me to Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship, he then continues and says, but non-discipleship, Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of time circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. Forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. Yes to abiding peace. Yes to a life penetrated throughout by love. Yes to faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. Yes to hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Yes to the power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. Yes to abundant life. And so... When you frame it that way, the cost of discipleship, Jesus' yoke seems pretty easy, and his burden seems pretty light. And today, would you have the courage to put on that yoke as well? Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for the ways in which you draw us ever closer to yourself. We thank you for those who have gone before us that teach us well. We thank you for Robert Mulholland. We thank you for Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his commitment to you. We thank you for Dallas Willard. We thank you for all of those who have gone before us and trotted this path and help us in our journey to discipleship. And Lord, this morning, would we have the courage? Would we have the strength? Would we have all we need to step ever closer towards you to pick up our cross, to examine our unlikeness, and then to say yes to you. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.